to the Mind Sensei Podcast. First, a big thank you for tuning in and welcome to the Mind Sensei Podcast, where we explore the minds of the most remarkable individuals on the planet. I'm your host, Peter Taz, and today's guest episode is a special one as we are joined by Senior Master of the Arts, Guru Richard Huck Planas. With over six decades of experience, Guru Planas is a highly respected figure in the world of martial arts. As a 10th degree Kempo Senior Master who's dedicated his life to the study and practice of martial arts, and as someone who's trained with some of the greatest, including Ed Parker, Guru Planas is a wealth of knowledge in the American Kempo system. Furthermore, Senior Master Richard Huck Planas is often referred to as the instructor's instructor, for his ability to impart his knowledge and refine the skills of fellow martial arts instructors. In fact, he's held the prestigious position of state-of-the-art director as appointed by Ed Parker himself, where he travelled extensively from school to school, spreading the teachings of American Kempo and ensuring its high standards were maintained. His expertise in Kempo, combined with his deep understanding of the art, has made him a sought-after mentor and advisor to countless martial art practitioners worldwide. His unique insights and practical approach to training have helped shape the lives and skills of many martial artists, making him a true living legend in the martial arts community. We are honoured to have Senior Master Richard Huckfarnas join us on the Mind Sensei podcast to share his wisdom, knowledge and experiences. Get ready to be enlightened by his profound insights into the power of the mind in martial arts as we explore the fascinating intersection of mental and physical disciplines. Throughout this episode, we'll be diving deep into the journey and becoming a martial artist. We'll also discuss his life and his martial arts career. Whether you're a practitioner of martial arts or simply interested in the mindset required for success in any field, this episode is sure to provide you with valuable insights from one of the best. So let's dive into the world of martial arts with Richard Huckplanus. Sit back and relax, get ready to learn from another one of the most insightful, inspiring martial artists of our time. Tell us uh, how you got started in martial arts or in your martial art journey. Well, we talked about the other day, you know, uh, all kids, I think back, especially back in the 60s, 50s, you know, more 60s or interested in martial arts. There wasn't a lot of movies around nothing then, but I don't know why. But anyway, we were, and a friend of mine, one of my best friends in high school and college, Cletus Hammock was his name. He's the one that got me started. He told me he was going to take karate lessons. And I said, go ahead. I'm not going to mess up my hands and, you know, and make useless meat hooks out of them where I can't play my guitar and play music and all that stuff. I didn't see him for quite a while. And then he came into a dance we were playing in Fresno, California. And I said, oh, where you been doing? He said, I've been doing this and this, and I've been doing karate. I said, oh, yeah. He said, in fact, I got to go down to the school and see if I pass one of my belt tests. I can't remember if it was a, it was a color belt test, a orange, purple, blue, something like that. I don't remember. But uh, he wanted to know if I wanted to go with him. I told him, yeah, I would. We were driving down the street, and we passed the karate school. It's the only school I knew about. It was a Shotokan school. Bob okay. Albert, uh, Shotokan school, very good Shotokan man. And I thought we were going there. He said, no, we're going to another school. And turned out to be a Kempo school, and that's where I met uh, Tom Kelly and Steve Labani, and some of my uh, fellow musician friends were in there, you know, working out. And I said, oh, "What are you guys doing here?" You know, they said, "You know, we're training and all this kind of stuff." And I said, "You're gonna mess up your hand?" They said, "Oh no, no, nothing like that." So they taught me to, you know, signing up, and I did. And let's say the rest is history. Cletus, the guy that got me started quit as a brown belt, you know, and I went on to make black and higher. Yeah. Well, that's yeah. how I got started. So who was your first instructor? My first instructor, the school belonged to Steve Labani and Tom Kelly was his assistant. And I think Tom, I think Tom was my first instructor. I'm not sure if Steve started me and then switched me to Tom. It's been too long ago. I mean, Many, many, many years. I would want to say that Tom Kelly was my first instructor. You know, and then after he left to go to El Paso to open the school down there, 
Steve Albani became my instructor. So there was a lot of people, you know, not a lot, but a few still around. I have schools down like one in, in Texas. I can't remember where he's at in the uh, Austin area, Houston area. Gary Swan, I don't know if he's still at it or not, but he was one of our, our brown belts in there at the time too. Gary was very good, very, very good. Excellent guy, really good. So when did you start with Mr. Parker and how did you meet him? Well, Steve Lavani school, he was a Tracy guy originally, as most of the schools were. You know, I tell people, you know, that Ed Parker's not responsible for spreading karate all over the United States. The Tracys were, and they did that with, you know, many, many people in schools. So Steve and Tom were Tracy or trained, or you could say, but they had just joined the IKKA under Ed Parker. I don't know how that happened or what happened or why, because back then you don't know who's who from the zoo, you know, or who's who from Adam. Didn't know yeah. who Ed Parker was at all or Tracy's. None of these guys. They had joined Parker's IKKA and we used to have promotional dinners. Tom would throw or Steve would throw a tournament in Fresno every year. And uh, we would have, you know, he would invite Ed Parker up uh, to be a special guest, you know, and give out awards and, and see promotions and, you know, stuff like that. And, and that's how I met him at one of the tournaments or not tournaments, but the uh, promotional dinners. I remember when I met Ed Parker, my name, Huck, Huck is a Filipino term. Huck Malahop is a, the full term, and it translates to the Filipino Liberation Army or something close to that. And I got that name from Tom Kelly. Tom Kelly gave me that because the Hucks all looked the same. They had a, a gang members. You know, if you, there's yeah. a couple of movies from the Philippines called Huck and the Huck Hunters. One was 58, and it was a George Montgomery movie. And you can watch that and see what they look like and, and what it was all about. But, you know, they called me, or Tom called me Rich. Richard, Rich the Huck. And then through the years, it just got shortened down to Huck. But I remember when they introduced me to Ed Parker, they said, this is a Richard Planus. We called him the Huck. And the old man looked at me and laughed and said, yeah, he looks like a Huck, doesn't he? Because I had the little pointed beard and the Fu Manchu yeah, yeah. yeah. and the long black hair from being a musician. So, you know, that's what I look like. So that's what they call me, the Huck. You still got the beard too. So you're still the Huck, right? Yeah. Have you studied other arts, Huck? Yeah, I started, I studied judo, little jujitsu, Filipino arts. This is all different, different times. Little Shotokan, little Kung Fu. That's about it. So Kempo is your main art, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, my first... Uh, real uh, what do you call it formal or you know formal training art uh, you know friends and hit and miss type stuff you know so what impressed you about ed parker the way again you don't know what karate is like i tell people when you when you go to join a karate school you don't know really what karate is uh a lot of people don't they uh the old man used to talk about that a lot you know, they, they, they mixed up judo with, with karate or whatever. They, they don't really know the differences. But the old man used to just relate it as karate is boxing and judo is wrestling. But the old man was a judo man first. And he told me lots of stories about that. But, you know, how he gave that up for karate. But for his size, you know, he was a very big, big man, heavyweight and super fast. He was in his prime, we will say, you know, when uh, we, we were working with him, and he just, it was very, very, like a lot of the old guys, you know, Hebler guys put, put it in words when they were doing interviews that the old man's size and speed, you know, and how he moved impressed the hell out of him, you know. Uh, it was very weird to see that, you know. So that's the thing. You say, wow, this guy, you know, kill an elephant if he charged him, you know. Yeah, yeah. Just, have you got any interesting stories? You were talking about the other day meeting up with Mr. Parker and Elvis taking you into the studio. We were talking about something the other night, but one I, I forgot about. 
Yeah. That uh, I tell people, Elvis, you know, loved guns. You know, we were, I think we were up at the house, at Elvis's house one night having dinner. We're eating chili out of gold bowls. You know, uh, it was uh, <laughs> pretty funny, but, you know, uh, we're, no, afterward we're sitting on the couch and uh, Elvis starts talking. I, said, I got this gun that I want to shoot. He said, but I can't find any ammo for it. I said, oh, yeah, what's that? So he told Red West, he said, Red, go get that gun. So Red came out with a gun and it was a broom handle Mauser, you know, World War One machine pistol. You know, I said, oh, it's just a broom handle Mauser. There's lots of ammo for that around. But I'd just seen some, you know, like the week or two before in Pasadena. And Elvis says, no, I've looked all over. So you can't find ammo for it. I said, Elvis, I can get you some ammo for that. He said, oh, yeah, you know, you get me some. So I said, okay. So, you know, I went back home and working through the week. And the next weekend, I was supposed to go to RCA to, you know, be with the old man and Elvis when he was filming uh, his last movie. Elvis on tour and doing some recording. I sort of recorded separate ways and I can't remember what the other side was. I went down to Arroyo Arms on Arroyo in Pasadena. And this is the best part of the story. You know, I asked that, you still got that 30 miles of ammo? He said, yeah, I got plenty of it. So I threw a $100 bill I think, on the counter and I said, give me $100 worth. So she, you got a miser? I said, no. He says, well, if you don't have a miser, he says, what do you want the ammo for? I said, you wouldn't believe me if I told you. <laughs> no, he, he, he brings out, puts it in the box, and he says, well, you got me curious. He said, if you don't have a miser, what do you want the ammo for? I said, well, if you really want to know, it's for Elvis Presley. He looked at me, and he started laughing. He says, you're right, I don't believe you. <laughs> okay, so I took it, threw it in my car, and then that next weekend, I walk into RCA, and the box, and walk over to Elvis, and here you go. What's that? I said, look. He looked at us, oh, damn, you could get the ass. I told you I could. So he didn't say anything. So the next time we're up at the house, we're sitting on the couch again, and, and Elvis tells Red, he says, Red, go get that gun. I thought he was going to get the same gun. So Red comes out with his cherry wood presentation box, and uh, he hands it to Elvis, and Elvis opens it up and hands it to me. He says, what do you think of that? And it's a nickel-plated six-inch cold python, 357. You know, and I like the feel of them. I like the look of them. I just don't like the action or, you know, nothing about them. Smith and Wesson, man. Yeah. So, uh, so Elvis, have you ever had one of these things apart? I said, they're full of bobby fans, the paper clips, the springs. I mean, they're not near the gun of Smith is. I basically just ran the gun down, you know, and he said, oh, I didn't know that. I didn't know. I didn't know. When we left that, and I walked outside. First time we did, we walked outside. Ed Parker says, you screwed up. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, forget him that ammo. He was going to give you that gun, but, but you handed out it, but he give you that gun. I didn't know. I yeah. was just telling him it was being truthful. You know? Yeah. So I told Dave uh, Stanley, you know, that movie, that story, uh, quite a few times at a different show. Uh, and he said, yeah, that gun's still on display at Graceland in, in, in Memphis. You know, he tried to give me something, but I didn't take it, or, or didn't, but yeah, I would have now for sure, you know. Yeah, yeah. I know you play guitar and a lot of other instruments too. Tell us about that. A musician. Yes. You know, that's what I did. So I had plenty of time to, to, you know, work out and play because we rehearsed a few times during the week and played on weekends uh, in a, a club in Fresno called the, was originally the Cinnamon Cinder Chain, but it became the Crimson Castle when uh, our band uh, members or the leaders of the band bought it and, and made it a club of their own. So I had plenty of time to work out and we, we played with a lot of the old big name people back in the old days, those 60s groups. I tell people, I, we played the oldies when they were newies. You know, that's <laughs> uh, funny. I feel like people named the old sources. Well, hey, you want to play something? Got to be old. If it's not old, I don't remember it. So who did you play with? Originally, the same band. They had different names, a few different names. But it became the Michael and the Jesters. Mickey Kimmer was their leader of the band. That was where the Michael came from, Mickey or Michael. But it was Mickey Kimmer, but it was called Michael and the Jesters. And then when he left, 
It just became the jesters, and it was the jesters for a long, long time, quite a few years. I, you know, I couldn't tell you how long, but I was the only original member, and I was the last one when we, you know, broke up and dissolved. And I did TV shows and radio shows talking about that from, from Central Valley, California. Now, there's a few uh, shows that are related to that, you know, for the old, the old uh, Central Valley bands and stuff. So did you play with Elvis at all? I played with Elvis one time and that was after, after we were, did the movie, the RCA, I forget what time we wrapped it up, but uh, after, you know, broke everything down, Elvis goes and jumps on the piano and, he starts playing. I said, oh, wow, man, it blew me away. I didn't know he was a piano player. And uh, there was a J.D. Sumner and the Stamps. They were his backup singers. That's uh, long after uh, the Jordanaires, but they were really good. Jimmy Burton, forget the bass player's name, stayed in there all night long playing gospel music, seven or eight in the morning. Uh, Lynn Harden, Elvis's piano player, had to get back to Memphis, or I think it was Memphis to get on dialysis. He was on kidney dialysis, so that's what broke that up. Stayed there all night. It was good time, good time. So, do you have any memorable moments there with Mr. Parker and Elvis? What would be one of your most memorable moments? That one about the about the gun, that Colt Python was the most memorable. Yeah, Uh, I had. I got Elvis a few guns for his collection. Nothing else really come to mind, you know, in, in that category. Yeah. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about who you used to do backings for in your music? Oh, there's two, uh, so many. I, I The most memorable ones were like Neil Diamond. There's pictures on the internet of us playing with Neil Diamond when he was brand new. Very uh, amazing didn't have anything to a multi, multi, multi millionaire. You know, I, don't, I don't know how he got it, but I remember seeing a story about Neil when they got divorced a good many years ago, where it said that his wife got a hundred million cash in a divorce settlement. I said, man, when I knew him, he didn't have a pot to pee in, as they say, you know? Yeah. And, and they said, don't worry, folks. He's got plenty left. You know, yep. he was one of the, the best guys that I liked playing with. He couldn't even tune his own guitar. I had to I had to tune his guitar for him. There's other people, big name players, that, you know, Snoopy. Uh, I didn't like very much. Uh, you know, like uh, Dobie Gray was one of them. You know, Dobie Gray. Yeah. His favorite favorite song that I like is uh, uh, "Drift Away." You know, "Give Me the Beat, Boys to Free My Soul." want to get lost in your rock and roll and drift away. I love that song. I love playing it. But uh, him as a person, I didn't like him at all. We had put, he wanted a big band. We put two bands together to back for that show and couldn't make him happy for nothing. Yeah. Back in the old days, you know, the birds, the grassroots, the turtles, the crickets, round robin. Yeah, I I couldn't name them all. There's too many years and I'm playing, you know, every weekend with somebody like that. That's yeah. amazing, amazing. Um, not many people know about your musical background that don't know you. Um, so it's good to hear, you know, that uh, all these different stories um, with your musical background. Can you tell us a little bit about your your group or your organisation, the Road Warrior Lineage? Well, that's uh, a play on words. You know, everybody knows what a Road Warrior is. They call everybody's traveling salesman, you know, for works for a company, Road Warriors, and you see it in a lot of the flight magazine. But uh, when I left California and, and moved to New Orleans and opened two schools, I had two schools, one on the east bank of the Mississippi River and one on the west bank of the Mississippi River. So I called one Dragon East and one Dragon West. And so that became that way for a long time. And that, what the schools were, and then I closed one up because it got too hard to travel back and forth, you know, so, and I didn't want to do that anymore. So I just kept dragging east and closed dragging west. But then 
as we got too heavy on the road, you know, I decided to drive it because actually the, the building got sold and the landlord came in and wanted to triple the rent or whatever. I can't remember too long ago. But I said, no, I'm getting too heavy on the road. And I said, no, you keep it. So I just went on the road and that's why I thought about Road Warrior. So that's where the name Road Warrior came from. And that's the name of my school now is uh, Road Warrior Temple. Amar Johansson in, in uh, Sweden, uh, when he started his his group going, he took the name and called Road Warrior Lineage for the lineage of Road Warrior Schools. So that's the name name of he uses now, Road Warrior Lineage. But uh, I've got people been with me all over the world for many years. The seminar that I canceled last week for health problems uh, in in Chico, California. This would have been like the thirty eighth or thirty ninth year in a row. And there was somebody at Bill Sheehan had the school before that, and there was seminars then. And I can't remember actually how many, but there's a lot of schools that are in there, like in the 30 year seminar numbers, you know, yeah. annual, annual numbers. Yeah. You have your own patch for your system? Yeah. That patch, my patch, was designed originally to take place of all the tips on the belt. There's people out there wearing candy cane belts, we call them. You know, it looks like they bled to death. So much red on them. But, uh, you know, it's, hey, that doesn't mean they know the system. And that's the one the old man says, because you, you show doesn't mean you know. So when I came up with my patch, it was going to be like an association patch. But then I said, no, it's going to be a going to be a knowledge patch. I said, so anybody that has my patch, the, the little patch, the three-inch patch, yeah. not the big patch that I came up with later, but the three-inch sleeve patch that you wear on your right sleeve that says that you know the system to my satisfaction, and you don't get it without that. You know, so. But then yeah. I have the big, like the Parker Crest, all the Parker patch that everybody wears. I have that also, but anybody can wear that but they can't wear the three-inch patch until they take the test. And that's a long test, takes two, two days or more sometimes, you know, to, to complete it. But you have to do everything and, and have knowledge, not just know-how, but, you know, explain this to me, explain that, you know, tell me the relationship of this to this and that to that and yep. whatever, and you know, make yep. sure that they have that. Because that's how the old man set it up. You know, all the ranks have a title, you know, like, I ask people, have you ever heard of a of a grammar school professor? No, they're teachers, just teachers. So you don't. When do you hear professor in universities and stuff? See, so you go through your grade school, just have teachers. You know, high school, you just have a high school teacher. And I don't know of any high school professors. There might be now, but you don't hear the word professor until higher education, and that's what it stands for. Yeah. So. When you hang a professor rank on somebody, you say, hey, what do you profess to know? You know, what do you profess? A lot of people can't tell you five five rules or uh, motion or, or relate any of the lower basic forms together in category completions that everybody has to do in our lineage, you know. Yeah, okay. So how many, um, you've got a few schools around the world, yeah, that are associated with you. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Some of the people around the world that associate, like where you've traveled and different schools around the world that you you have uh, with you. Um, it's just like I say, how many Bruce Lees are there? How many Jackie Chans are there? You know, of the thousands and thousands of people doing martial arts, there's very few. There's very few. So uh, I tell people there's nobody that has it well-rounded all the way. Like if somebody says, okay, who, if I wanted to do this, who do I train with? I say, well, if you want to just do that, go see this guy. Yeah. Uh, it's, I'd say related to eating a meal, like we talked about the other day. You know, you have your, your meat, vegetables, whatever. So, you know, you have your three parts of karate. You have your technique, your forms, and your freestyle. There's not one person that has it all very strong, strong in that, you know. 
some people, you know, tend to go this way, tend to go that way or whatever. And that's why there is the, in a tournament, there's people that just go to kind of competition. There's people just go to fight. There's some people just go to do, you know, self-defense or whatever. Uh, it's what they like, you know, so yeah, that's the thing. Uh, but I've got people all around the world that, you know, are strong in, in certain points. But not, I say, not everybody has it where I say, hey, this is, this is it. Tell us, what's your favorite part of Kempo? My favorite part of Kempo is formulation. That's what I've been doing now for many, many years. Is Like the old man said, all these forms and techniques are for. It's to teach you how to move. So they don't have to be done that way. They can be done any way you want. And it's all based on rules and principles of motion. A lot of it's for category completion you do this and do this behind it because that completes a category but here's another way to do it here's another way to do it here's another way to do it and so that's what i like to do you've been in there's only a few positions you know like we say right to right and left to left inside or out inside or right outside or right inside left outside left left to left right to right the footwork or whatever your position is so there's not that many so and it was your in range like people said, there's two ranges, in range and out of range. And I sort of go along with that, but there's more to it than that because of your three main zones, you know, your, your short range, mid range, and, and uh, close range. But um, I like to take and formulate and, and put put techniques together. And a lot of times I'll, I'll do that. You know, I'll take simple techniques and say, now, hey, let's combine this, this, and this. Sometimes I'll do four or five techniques, you know, rolled into one. Yeah. And I say, have you ever done this before? Or I just say, oh, this is great. This is good. Have you never done this before? I said, no, no. I said, how come? Why? Never thought about it. That's right. You just never applied your brain to think about it. I said, oh, this is right there in front of you. Very, very simple. If you just start looking at it, you'll come up with this stuff. That's how we got put together in the first place. You know, that's what we did on, you know, putting Big Red together. You know, is just doing that, you know. How long have you been teaching? I became a teacher when I was a white belt. I started training with Tom and Steve in California. I was working out one day, and I don't remember who told me, if it was Steve, Tom, or Labani wants to see you in the office. So I thought, oh, I'm in trouble. What I do now, you know. So I went and I said, "What's up?" And uh, he said, "Once you go to work, teach it for us." And he's tossed me a key. He said, "Give you ten seconds to make up your mind." I said, oh. "I said, you know, whatever." So, you know, I started teaching. You know, back then, I was a very short time before I got my. There was no yellow. There was orange belt. Was the first belt, but. Uh, that God, I'd say, I don't know how many years ago because I've been at a good bit over 50 years now. Were you involved in what in the in the new system? Yeah, big red, yes. Yeah. Tom Kelly, the old man to me, stayed up Friday, Saturday, Sunday nights, late, late on weekends at the Pasadena school putting big red together because it was all new then, and people would find that hard to believe. Uh, we made Big Red so he didn't have to. And then when we did that, we came up with the, I don't know what you'd call it, pecking order or whatever, of who's who in the zoo or whatever. So uh, we put together a, a road team, uh, one for business, one for the art. And that was my title. I was state-of-the-art director. That was my job to travel around all the schools teaching you know, what was in Big Red to all these people because nobody else knew it. It was all new at the time, and the old man didn't. I mean, and Dave Hebler talked about that a lot. You know, he said, we'll be at a seminar or something, and the old man would come over and ask me, oh, he said, how did this go? Because I don't remember. You know, I said, I have to tell him, you know. Uh, so I said, just, and there's some clips on on Facebook of us working out old, old clips behind the Pasadena School, me and the old man, and a few other guys, some other was 
uh, doing going through the material. It was all brand new. And it was, but again, I said it wasn't his job. It was my job to know it. Have you traveled for martial arts? Well, that's all I do. Like I say, that's where the road warrior name comes from. You know, there was a time when the old man and myself were the only ones traveling around, you know, the country doing seminars. And that's what everybody wanted. Either one of the old man or they wanted me. A lot of times people would come to the school from out of town, you know, and if the old man wasn't available to teach them, they said, well, we want to have planners, you know, she says, I said, okay. And then some of them had told me that, you know, we like what you teach better than the old man. I said, well, don't ever tell the old man that. So um, what position did you have with, uh, in Mr. Parker's organization? Uh, I was the, became originally, eventually, uh, when we, Tom got there before I did from El Paso, he became the manager. So they moved him to Santa Monica and I took over the Pasadena school. And then Tom wanted to go to Utah. So the old man opened a school in Murray, Utah and put him up there and he couldn't make a go of it. So closed it up and went back. His mother got sick or something and moved back to Oklahoma to help his mother on the farm or whatever. But uh, I was the manager of the Pasadena school for, I couldn't tell you how many years, a good, a good long time. But uh, that's what I eventually became the manager before. Then uh, that's when we got to, uh, the association started growing and, and the road team and the, uh, all that stuff. And I got shifted to the road to travel around the country teaching, teaching the different school owners. Okay. So you were like uh, quality control. Yes, yes. That's what it was called state of the art director. State okay. of the art. Yeah. Okay. I, I forget who came up with that term. It wasn't the old man. It was somebody else came up with that. So do you have any tips for people starting in martial arts? Well, like we talked about the other day, you know, think about what you're doing, you know, what it's for. You know, martial arts, are, it's a fighting art. It's to save your butt in the street so when you get jumped, you know, you hopefully, hopefully, again, hopefully come out on top. That's what the old man called the moment of truth. That's when you find out what you can do and if you can do it. You know, you walk into many schools to see people, kids, little girls, whatever, wearing black belts with candy cane chips on them and stuff. You say, boy, hope this person never gets in a real fight because, you know, they're not going to last very long. So that's what you got to realize. Hey, what am I training for? You got to train hard and realistic. The old saying is if you don't train hard and realistic, you won't fight that way either. So just treat it for what it's worth. I tell people, I say, who, who are you training to fight? We call him the big bully. Why is he called the big bully? He doesn't like to fight? No. He goes to church on Sunday to pick a fight. You know, it's, 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 he fights every day if he can. He loves to fight. You know, a lot of people just love that. They love the pain, love the blood, whatever. You know, so if you've never, ever been in a fight in your whole life, you know, and you have run up across somebody like that, like one of these cage fighters or stuff, you think, hey, <laughs> Now you're going to find out. Now you're going to find out. So that's that's the thing is treat it, treat it for what it is. But remember, a lot of what makes it work is surprise. Surprise. I tell a story goes along with that. I was leaving town one day from New Orleans, going to a seminar, and a girl dropped me off at the airport. And she said, oh, look, there's a couple of your students. I said, what? And I looked over, and there's two girls wearing deeds. One was a green belt, and one was, a, I think, a yellow or an orange belt. I said, huh. So, uh, you know, I went to my gate, and they just happened to be at my gate. So I says, hey, girls, can I ask you a question? I said, what do you train? What do you? They told me this. I never heard of it. So I said, okay. I said, well, let me ask you a question. I said, what, what do you think makes martial arts work? And the, the white belt or the nice, yellow nice. belt, don't ask me. You know, I just started, ask, ask her. So I asked the green belt. I said, what makes what you do work? 
And she says, oh, I don't know. And I said, don't you think surprise? Surprise? And she said, oh, yeah, yeah, we thought about that. I said, evidently not too much. What are you doing wearing a gi? Who are you going to surprise? If somebody sees you wearing a gi, say, oh, martial arts girls, they don't know what you know and what you can do. So if they're going to do something, they're going to get some help or whatever, and you're going to be in a much warmer world of hurt. You know, but that's the thing. That's why when I go places, you know, I don't wear the jackets or the hats with the patch and the flag all over them. You know, if you're going someplace that, you know, it's where you're not known, because you again, you want that surprise to be there. At a function, you know, it's a different story, but not just to be traveling around wearing the flying the flag, as we call it, you know, yeah. let the cat out of the bag. Yeah. So do you have an inspirational quote that you use for, that you could share? Fight like you train. You know, if you don't train hard and realistic, you won't fight that way either. Yeah. You know, so that's it in a nutshell. You know, okay. you know uh, like the old saying, you know, a block is a block, a strike's a strike, a kick's a kick, a punch is a punch. No matter what the system is, it's got to be hard, fast, and furious if it's going to get the job done. You know, and that's the thing, you know, like you can't shoot blanks in a real fight. I say everybody knows in a gunfight, in the movies, everybody's shooting blanks and nobody gets hurt. Definitely, definitely. When you're in the street, you can't shoot blanks. You know, you got to have the possess, you know, and the power to make it work. Some people are beautiful in their moves, beautiful in their moves but have no power at all. You know, it wouldn't, wouldn't hurt a baby or a flea, as they say, you know, so no, yeah. I won't get it. So you've got, you've got a few senior students yourself. Tell me about some of your senior students. Some of these guys, you know, they've been with me for a long, long time, many, many years. And some work harder than others. As I was saying, you know, not everybody works as hard as they should, and most people know that. Don't have time anymore. You know, there's some say they've got their strong points. Some do uh, stronger points, and then different areas. Uh, again, nobody has it all. Uh, so, you know, people ask me all the time, "Hey, we're not saying anything uh, bad, but." If you were to die tomorrow, you know, who would you want me to go train with? I says, I don't know who you want to train with. I said, I can tell you people you've never heard of, that you've probably never heard of, never been on the mat with, that could teach you a lot. Yeah. But, uh, you know, that's the thing. I said, so you just look around. A lot of these people, that's how they did what they did, is they look around. Like the old man had a saying about, don't be like the person in the bottom of a well. When you look up at the sky and see that round patch of sky and say, that's all the sky there is. No, climb out of that well and look around. You'll see there's a lot more sky out there. So that's the thing. And many people have done that. Not many, many, but quite a few have traveled the world looking, you know, at the different things and instructors. Yeah, sure. You know, and some people do that. Some people don't story I tell goes along with that. I went to Chile. The first time I went to Chile, uh, South America, I think it was 2000. We were there. We had a good time. And then I can't remember how many years ago, not that many years ago. But anyway, I told him, I said, oh, it's good to be back in Chile. He said, yeah, we were at your first seminar here. I said, oh, yeah, when was that? Because I don't know. I'm, I'm terrible on dates and time. They said it was 2000 or whatever. I said, oh, that was, was 10 or 12 years ago at the time. And I said, oh, okay. okay. I, I, I said, how come? Wait, how come what? How come, how come I haven't been back here in, in 12 years? Uh, we don't know. I said, I want me to tell you? Nobody picked up the phone to call me. I said, all it takes is picking up the phone and calling me. I'll go anywhere as long as it fits the schedule, you know, and teach anybody, you know, but nobody would go out of their way to do that. So yeah. the two people that put, put this on, Andres uh, Bergania and uh, Claudio Soto, you know, put it on. Put it, and it's, See these guys here? You thank them for me being, being here because if they hadn't picked up the phone and called me, I still wouldn't be here. 
I still wouldn't be here. See? So you thank them, don't thank me. I'll go anywhere. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. That some people make it happen. Some people let it happen. Some people say, what happened? Yeah. <laughs> There's a story from the old man. Yeah. Yeah. So tell us a bit about your Australian visit. I know you've been here. Yeah. You know how long ago that been? <laughs> That's been a long you time. You remember? <laughs> I don't. Yeah. When was it? <laughs> uh 2013 maybe it's on the shirts that we had made 10 years ago it's been longer than that i think yeah i love traveling the world it's funny <laughs> i tell people the farthest places i go from home it's been australia and new zealand and i said it's funny the farthest places away the language is english <laughs> I said, oh, that's good, yeah. I didn't have to worry about, you know, understanding people. But, uh, yeah, I love uh, I love seeing, you know, the world. That's why I tell people, hey, just give me some place new to go, you know, new. Yeah. You, know, I, you know, but give me a few days to look around or whatever. There's a lot more of Australia I want to see. I got friends on the west side uh, over in the Perth area. You know, I like to see the middle, you know, uh, Kakadu, more the outback and uh, Ayers Rock, Snowy River Country, you know, all of that stuff. You know, I really like that. Yeah. That's uh yeah, it's I really I really liked and enjoyed Australia a lot when we were there. I hear you like whips as well. You're into whips. Well, I don't know again it's the same as the martial arts. You know, kids kids like that kind of stuff and I'm I was raised on a ranch and a farm, headstock and all that stuff. But uh, also the movies were a big influence. Uh, when I was a kid, there was a few cowboys that used bullwhips. Lash LaRue, who I eventually got to meet, I used to just make whips out of pieces of leather and uh, hose and pipes and stuff. And I always grew up liking the whips. And then when I was in high school, I got my first real whip for my 12th birthday. It was an old Buckheimer bull whip. Uh, not a very good whip as good whips go. I learned uh, what a good whip was and how the uh, Australian cowboys use a whip instead of a rope like the American cowboys do, because they use a stock whip, which is a different whip. There's three types of whips, the stock whip, the bull whip, and the black snake. And there's a lot of competition they have to bears and different things over there in Australia that you use a whip, but you can only use a stock whip. You can't use a bull whip or a black thing. Uh, I, I don't know why, but anyway, that's the standard working whip. And I really like them. And through the years, you know, I met lots of whip makers and, and became friends. Like one of the best whip makers who used to be from Australia is in the Perth area, and that was Mike Murphy champion maker and user. I have lots of whips from him and lots of different people. Uh, and he's also a black belt in martial arts. So he took him over and work out with Marty and, you know, you guys in Australia, I mean, uh, Arizona and stuff. Uh, and uh, he's a really, really good guy. I wish he had to quit, quit making them, but he did. I feel what it went into, but went into something else. A lot of other guys did also. I hear you also like knives. Oh, yeah, again, knives, whips, guns. Everybody, you know, used to carry a knife when I was a kid. We used them in school. You know, the, the, the PE would go out and play bumbly pig or stretch. You know, you do, do that now and they'll throw you in jail or put you under a jail. But, you know, uh, just uh, always like knives uh, and I made my first knife, I think it was in 1960. I forged it out of a file. I used a piece of deer horn for the handle that my uncle had shot. Uh, and I still have that knife. And it's a, it's a great little paper skinner. And I use it for a patch knife when I was shooting muzzleloaders too. But, uh, you know, then I, I eventually, when I started going to college, I think it was, I saw an ad in a paper, or not a paper, a magazine from Gil Hibben, who was a very famous knife maker. 
still is. We're like brothers and have been for a long time. I ordered his catalog and then just used to drool over it and all that stuff. And then we were at the International back in the 60s. I forget what year it was, early. The old man, Ed Parker, he mentioned something about Gil Hibben. And I said, Gil Hibben, the night baker? He said, yeah, he's one of our black belts. He's here. You know, he said, oh, I'm going to meet him. So he set it up like to meet him. And he met him. And, you know, and we became friends. You know, he said, you teach me karate, I'll teach you how to make knives. And we basically did that. You know, and I moved to, uh, in with him in Alaska and stuff and worked for him up there before I went back to California. Just one of the knife departments that, you know, that I got into. Gil is also the one that was uh, responsible for making the Parker knife and so popular because he did that for his black belt thesis, you know, and then sold just a uh, bazillion of them to different martial artists. Eventually, they changed the name from the Kempo Karate Knife to just the Karate Knife so other systems could take advantage of it, too. And I don't know how many did, but, you know, that's what they changed the name for. I've got uh, Kempo 1 and 2 knives. Yeah. I think there's more than that. Yeah, yeah. So you also play other instruments, yeah? Ed Parker's the one that got me uh, interested in ukulele. Uh, he played the ukulele. He had, I don't remember how many, but there's three or f four sizes of ukuleles. The small ones, the soprano, 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 and the concert, concert the tenor, tenor, and the and baritone. A, yeah, two of the same except for the baritone, which is two like a regular guitar. Yeah, uh, but you know he used to play classical guitars type stuff on ukulele. It really blew me away. Uh, we used to sit in uh, Pasadena school and, and play, you know, together a lot. I was trying to remember one of the old songs that, that we used to play together all the time called Five Foot Two. It's an old, old way, way back, you know, uh, Charleston days. So, you know, Five Foot Two, Eyes of Blue, and I can't remember it. I'm going to have to play with this more. But, you know, he was really good on ukulele. Yeah. Uh, then I started buying them, but... I still have, I got a bunch of them now, but, you know, I never play them along with a bunch of my guitars. I got too many, too many everything. So you, you got me into playing the ukulele when you came out here. Yeah, you did. <laughs> yeah. yeah, when you came over. A lot of people say that about scotch. <laughs> yeah, yeah. In Europe, you got me drinking scotch. I said, no, you drinking scotch. You know, I drink scotch. And if you want to drink with me. You go, yeah, but now they like scotch, you know, so yeah. I can't think of anybody. You're the first guy I think that's ever said I got you into the ukulele. Last time we had a bottle and a half of scotch when you came over. Yeah, <laughs> I think I remember the brand. I think that was, uh, I remember that scotch. Yeah. yeah I, uh, it'll hit me. It'll hit me one of these days. I know what it is. Yeah, yeah well, but it was good. We played all night then. I have a, I have a video of you playing. Playing what? Play guitar. Too long ago. I can't remember. Well, there's lots of those around somewhere. Have you ever seen that clip of Frank Trejo, me, and uh, Larry Tatum playing at the Internationals? Yeah, sitting on the couch upstairs. Yeah. That's that, was a, that was fun. Just fun. making up blues. I don't have, I used to have it. I don't have it anymore. My computer crashed and, and good luck with the new school when you get it open. Yes, we'll have to get you over. And that concludes our episode of the Mind Sensei podcast with the legendary 10th degree senior master of the arts, Richard Huckplanus. We hope you enjoyed listening to his amazing life journey from his early days as a musician with Michael and the Jesters to performing alongside some of the great musical icons of our time, such as Neil Diamond, Dubby Gray and Elvis Presley. But it was in the martial arts where Richard Huckplan has truly made his mark, becoming one of the most respectful and influential Kempo practitioners in the world. As the head of the Road Warrior lineage, he's trained countless students and instructors, leaving a lasting legacy that will continue to shape martial arts community for years to come. We thank you, Senior Master Planus, for sharing your inspiring story and insights with us today. 
and we encourage our listeners to continue to learn from his teachings and follow in his footsteps. Thank you for tuning in to the Mind Sensei podcast. I'm your host Peter Taz and you've tuned in to the Mind Sensei podcast from Down Under. We want to take a moment to thank all our listeners for tuning in to the Mind Sensei podcast. We appreciate your support and hope our show has been both informative and entertaining for you. If you haven't already done so, we would like to invite you to subscribe to our podcast so you never miss an episode. By subscribing, you'll be the first to know when we release new content and you'll have access to all of our past episodes. We also encourage you to visit our website at mindsensei.au where you can find additional resources related to martial arts. On our site, you can read blog posts, videos and learn more about the guests we feature on our show. Finally, we'd like to thank our guests for sharing their knowledge and experience with us. Without their generosity, this podcast would not be possible. Thank you again for listening to the Mind Sensei podcast down under. We hope that you continue to join us on this journey through the world of martial arts.